0: A thousand miles up the Nile, Section 24. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A thousand miles up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards, Chapter 8: Thebes and Karnak, Part 3. I seem to remember the rest as if it had all happened in a dream. Leaving the small temple, we turned towards the river skirted the mud-walls of the native village, and approached the great temple by way of its main entrance. Here we entered upon what had once been another great avenue of sphinxes, ram-headed, couchant on plinths deep-cut with hieroglyphic legends, leading up from some grand landing-place beside the Nile. And now the towers that we had first seen as we sailed by in the morning rose straight before us magnificent in ruin, glittering to the sun, and relieved in creamy light against the blue depths of sky. One was nearly perfect, the other, shattered as if by the shock of an earthquake, was still so lofty that an Arab clamoring from block to block midway of its vast height looked no bigger than a squirrel. On the threshold of this tremendous portal we again dismounted. Shapeless, crude brick mounds, marking the limits of the ancient wall of circuit, reached far away on either side. An immense perspective of pillars and pylons leading up to a very distant obelisk opened out before us. We went in, the great walls towering up like cliffs above our heads, and entered the first court. Here, in the midst of a large quadrangle open to the sky, stands a solitary column, the last of a central avenue of twelve, some of which, disjointed by the shock, lie just as they fell like skeletons of vertebrate monsters left stranded by the flood crossing this court in the glowing sunlight we came to a mighty doorway between two more propylons the doorway splendid with colored bas-reliefs the propylons mere cataracts of fallen blocks piled up to right and left in grand confusion the cornice of the doorway is gone only a jutting fragment of the lintel stone remains that stone, when perfect, measured forty feet and ten inches across. The doorway must have been full a hundred feet in height. We went on. Leaving to the right a mutilated colossus engraven on arm and breast with the cartouche of Ramesses II, we crossed the shade upon the threshold, and passed into the famous hypostyle hall of Seti I. It is a place that has been much written about, and often painted but of which no writing and no art can convey more than a dwarfed and pallid impression to describe it in the sense of building up a recognizable image by means of words is impossible the scale is too vast the effect too tremendous the sense of one's own dumbness and littleness and incapacity too complete and crushing it is a place that strikes you into silence that empties you as it were not only of words, but of ideas. Nor is this a first effect only. Later in the year, when we came back down the river and moored close by, and spent long days among the ruins, I found that I never had a word to say in the great hall. Others might measure the girth of those tremendous columns. Others might climb hither and thither, and find out points of view, and test the accuracy of Wilkinson and Mariette. But I could only look, and be silent." yet to look is something, if one can but succeed in remembering, and the great hall of Karnak is photographed in some dark corner of my brain for as long as I have memory. I shut my eyes and see it as if I were there, not all at once, as in a picture, but bit by bit, as the eye takes note of large objects and travels over an extended field of vision. I stand once more among those mighty columns, which radiate into avenues from whatever point one takes them. I see them swathed in coiled shadows and broad bands of light. I see them sculptured and painted with shapes of gods and kings, with blazonings of royal names, with sacrificial altars, and forms of sacred beasts, and emblems of wisdom and truth. The shafts of these columns are enormous. I stand at the foot of one, or of what seems to be the foot, for the original pavement lies buried seven feet below. Six men, standing with extended arms, fingertip to fingertip, could barely span it round. It casts a shadow twelve feet in breadth, such a shadow as might be cast by a tower. The capital that juts out so high above my head looks as if it might have been placed there to support the heavens." It is carved in the semblance of a full-blown lotus, and glows with undying colors, colors that are still fresh, though laid on by hands that have been dust these three thousand years and more. It would take not six men, but a dozen, to measure round the curved lip of that stupendous lily. Such are the twelve central columns. The rest, one hundred and twenty-two in number, are gigantic, too, but smaller of the roof they once supported only the beams remain those beams are stones huge monoliths carved and painted bridging the space from pillar to pillar and patterning the trodden soil with bands of shadow looking up and down the central avenue we see at the one end a flame-like obelisk at the other a solitary palm against a background of glowing mountain to right to left showing transversely through long files of columns we catch glimpses of colossal bas-reliefs lining the roofless walls in every direction. The king, as usual, figures in every group, and performs the customary acts of worship. The gods receive and approve him. Half in light, half in shadow, these slender, fantastic forms stand out sharp, and clear, and colorless, each figure some eighteen or twenty feet in height. They could scarcely have looked more weird when the great roof was in its place and perpetual twilight reigned. But it is difficult to imagine the roof on and the sky shut out. It all looks right as it is, and one feels, somehow, that such columns should have nothing between them and the infinite blue depths of heaven. The great central avenue was, however, sufficiently lighted by means of a double row of clerestory windows some of which are yet standing certain writers have suggested that they may have been glazed but this seems improbable for two reasons firstly because one or two of these huge window frames yet contain the solid stone gratings which in the present instance seem to have done duty for a translucent material and secondly because we have no evidence to show that the early egyptians though familiar since the days of Cheops with the use of the blowpipe, ever made glass in sheets, or introduced it in this way into their buildings. How often it has been written, and how often must it be repeated, that the great Hall at Karnak is the noblest architectural work ever designed and executed by human hands! One writer tells us that it covers four times the area occupied by the Cathedral of Notre-Dame in Paris another measures it against St. Peter's. All admit their inability to describe it, yet all attempt the description. To convey a concrete image of the place to one who has not seen it is, however, as I have already said, impossible. If it could be likened to this place or that, the task would not be so difficult, but there is, in truth, no building in the wide world to compare with it. The pyramids are more stupendous the Colosseum covers more ground. The Parthenon is more beautiful. Yet in nobility of conception, in vastness of detail, in majesty of the highest order, the Hall of Pillars exceeds them every one. This doorway, these columns, are the wonder of the world. How was that lintel-stone raised? How were these capitals lifted? Entering among those mighty pillars, says a recent observer, you feel that you have shrunk to the dimensions and feebleness of a fly. But I think you feel more than that. You are stupefied by the thought of the mighty men who made them. You say to yourself, there were indeed giants in those days. It may be that the traveller who finds himself for the first time in the midst of a grove of Wellington Gigantia feels something of the same overwhelming sense of awe and wonder but the great trees, though they have taken three thousand years to grow, lack the pathos and the mystery that comes of human labor. They do not strike their roots through six thousand years of history. They have not been watered with the blood and tears of millions. Their leaves know no sounds less musical than the singing of birds, or the moaning of the night wind as it sweeps over the highlands of Calaveros. But every breath that wanders down the painted aisles of Karnak seems to echo back the sighs of those who perished in the quarry, at the oar, and under the chariot-wheels of the conqueror. The Hippostyle Hall, though built by Seti, the father of Rameses II, is supposed by some Egyptologists to have been planned, if not begun, by that same Amenhotep III who founded the temple of Luxor, and set up the famous colossi of the Plain. However, this may be the cartouches so lavishly sculptured on pillar and architrave contain no names but those of Seti, who undoubtedly executed the work on block, and of Ramesses, who completed it. And now would it not be strange if we knew the name and history of the architect who superintended the building of this wondrous hall, and planned the huge doorway by which it was entered, and the mighty pylons which lie shattered? on either side. Would it not be interesting to look upon his portrait, and see what manner of man he was? Well, the Egyptian room in the Glyptotek Museum at Munich contains a statue found some seventy years ago at Thebes, which almost certainly represents that man, and is inscribed with his history. His name was Bach and Khonsu, servant of Kansu. He sits upon the ground, bearded and robed, in an attitude of meditation. That he was a man of unusual ability is shown by the inscriptions engraved upon the back of the statue. These inscriptions record his promotion, step by step, to the highest grade of the hierarchy. Having attained the dignity of high priest and first prophet of Amun during the reign of Seti I, he became the chief architect of the Thebed under Ramesses II, and received a royal commission to superintend the embellishment of the temples when ramesses the Second erected a monument to his divine father amen-ra the building thereof was executed under the direction of bak and khonsu here the inscription as translated by m. de vera goes on to say that he made the sacred edifice in the upper gate of the abode of amen he erected obelisks of granite he made golden flagstaffs, he added very, very great colonnades. M. de Verrier suggests that the temple of Gurna may here be indicated, but to this it might be objected that Gurna is situated in the lower and not the upper part of Thebes, that at Gurna there are no great colonnades and no obelisks, and that, moreover, for some reason, at present unknown to us, the erection of obelisks seems to have been almost wholly confined to the eastern bank of the Nile. It is, however, possible that the works here enumerated may not all have been executed for one and the same temple. The sacred edifice in the upper gate of the abode of Amon might be the temple of Luxor, which Ramesses did in fact adorn with the only obelisks we know to be his in Thebes. The monument erected by him to his divine father Amen evidently a new structure, would scarcely be any other than the Ramesseum, while the very, very great colonnades, which are expressly specified as additions, would seem as if they could only belong to the hippostyle hall of Karnak. The question is at all events interesting, and it is pleasant to believe that in the Munich statue we have not only a portrait of one who, at Karnak, played the part of Michelangelo to some foregone and forgotten Bramante, but who was also the Ictinus of the Ramesseum. For the Ramesseum is the Parthenon of Thebes. The sun was sinking, and the shadows were lengthening, when, having made the round of the principal ruins, we at length mounted our donkeys and turned toward Luxor. To describe all that we saw after leaving the great hall would fill a chapter huge obelisks of shining granite, some yet erect, some shattered and prostrate, vast lengths of sculptured walls covered with wondrous battle subjects, sacerdotal processions and elaborate chronicles of the deeds of kings, ruined courtyards surrounded by files of headless statues, a sanctuary built all of polished granite and engraven like a gem, a second hall of pillars dating back to the early days of the Third, labyrinths of roofless chambers, mutilated colossi, shattered pylons, fallen columns, unintelligible foundations and hieroglyphic inscriptions without end, were glanced at, passed by, and succeeded by fresh wonders. I dare not say how many small outlying temples we saw in the course of that rapid survey. In one place we came upon an undulating tract of coarse half grass in the midst of which, battered, defaced, forlorn, sat a weird company of green granite sphinxes and lioness-headed basts. In another we saw a magnificent colossal hawk upright on his pedestal in the midst of a bergfall of ruins. More avenues of sphinxes, more pylons, more colossi, were passed before the road we took in returning— brought us round to that by which we had come. By the time we reached the sheikh's tomb it was nearly dusk. We rode back across the plain, silent and bewildered. Have I not said that it was like a dream? End of section 24